You are listening to the Fifth and One podcast presented by Patrick DeMar and Paul Kamish Kashak, available on Spotify, Apple Music. You can also follow us on Instagram at Fifth and Long Pod. That's F I F T H and Long Pod. We got an exciting show for you today. We're talking a little bit about the Jim Harbaugh suspension and the fallout from that, as well as uh, some other college football storylines, of course, going through the top four uh, and the other CFP rankings. Of course, we're going to be hitting on some NFL stuff as well, talking about some big games from week 10, highlighting some games to look forward to for week 11, as well as some overreactions from the previous week and previewing some coaches who we think uh, could potentially be on the hot seat and might not be with their teams once this season comes to a close. And then we'll finish out with some fantasy football stuff as well. Got some interesting segments for you as far as that goes. Enjoy the show. Let us know if you have any questions about your fantasy teams heading towards the rest of the weekend and stay tuned with us on socials as well. But without further ado, here is the fifth and long podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, may I direct your attention to something quite extraordinary, quite incredible, quite unlike anything you may have experienced in your life. All right. Patrick Mark. Paul Kamishkashak talking some football with you. We got some college football stuff. Got some NFL and fantasy stuff on the way as well. We're going to start with quite possibly the biggest news in the football world from the weekend. John Harbaugh no longer on the sidelines uh, for the Michigan Wolverines. Michigan still was able to get a win against the Penn State Nittany Lions this past weekend. Uh, Something their quarterback, J.J. McCarthy, was pretty amped up about. Uh, as was the rest of their fan base. We saw the bet tweets coming out after the news of of Harbaugh uh, not being allowed to be on the sidelines broke. It's pretty crazy. Unprecedented in terms of um, scandals and in-season punishments I've seen for head coaches in the college football world. I do have a little bit of familiarity with sign stealing because I am a Patriots fan and I do remember uh, Spygate just a little bit. But this seems like it's touching a few more corners of the football world because it is the college game. And it's for a guy like uh, coach Harbaugh, who, who is coaching at a university like Michigan that has the acclaim and history that they do. Paul, what's, what's your take on this whole mess of a situation? Brief background, just for anybody who doesn't know too much of the story. Um, this is the big news in college football right now. And that says something here is we're 10 weeks in and with the college football playoffs heating up. So basically, Michigan is accused, and there's actually more than accused. There, there's proof of them stealing signs uh, at opponents' games. So it's against NCAA regulations to actually for staff members to go to an opponent's game and video signs and signals. Like, so let's say Michigan was going to play Wisconsin next week, which they're not. It, they had staffers go to the Wisconsin game and record and video signals that's illegal in terms of ncaa rules you can pick up things on tv or just naturally in terms of when you're playing that team head to head live and in person but you can't go to another venue and pick up those signals there's a gentleman by the name of connor stallions who has since resigned from the university of michigan he is employee on their on their staff who was orchestrating this so to speak um paying other associates and i believe even attending games himself um, paying for tickets with his own StubHub, his own SeatGeek uh, account, Venmoing people with the captions of the actual team that they were scouting. So there's a lot of proof of Michigan associates actually doing this. So there's no real alleged when it comes to the a- accusations. 
I think two questions really arise here when we consider everything. It's first, how much is Jim Harbaugh involved? How much did he know? And then is this something that really warrants punishment? And I think that though those questions may seem black and white, there's a lot of gray. And I've already heard it from plenty of people talking around the college football circle. The answers aren't quite black and white. I think when it comes to me, I look at it a little bit more black and white where, look, if it's against NCAA regulations, there has to be some sort of punishment. I know a lot of people are going to say, oh, well, it's not hurting anybody and there's probably a million teams doing it. Well, maybe there are a million teams doing it, but you're innocent until proven guilty. And Michigan has been proven guilty. On to the Jim Harbaugh side of things. I just find it difficult to believe. And let me let me clarify this before I go and say anything further. All of this is pure speculation. Okay, I am not part of the Michigan program. I can't say anything with 100% certainty. Us on this podcast, we're just here to speculate. I just find it very difficult to believe that somebody as high-ranking as Jim Harbaugh at the University of Michigan has no idea that something like this is going on. I mean, if that's the case, then was he even seeing the signals and the signs? And, you know, it's it just it's difficult to believe that this was going on under his nose and it within his program. And he's got no knowledge of it whatsoever. Obviously, that's what he's going to say. It's only a sideline ban, so it's not a huge punishment in and of itself. He's still able to help game plan with the team throughout the course of the week. He's able to travel with the team. He just can't be there on game day with him. So his fingerprints are still all over the game plan but i don't know i'd love to hear your take on it as well about how gray or how black and white you you think those topics are and, and kind of where you land on on each of those items it's tough to tell what happened and what didn't happen obviously there were signs that were stolen and there was a michigan staffer in attendance at those games that cannot be disputed um what the intention of that was is is really interesting whether or not there were sign stealing how high up that sign stealing rope went i guess in terms of what's one end of the phone and what's the other end of the phone right is connor stallions directly in harbaugh's ear saying we've got the signals recorded when do you want me to drop off the tapes in your office or whatever it's a lot there's a lot of sketchiness around this situation i it's tough too because michigan to this point in the season for me i think would be probably the toughest team for any other team to play. Georgia's got a bone to pick in that conversation as well, which we'll talk about a little bit, but if it's true, he, he deserves to be punished. And I don't know if that's going to be a permanent ban from the school or if he'll be relieved from duties or if it'll just be a thing that comes maybe with a year long suspension and a fine or, or what. Um, I think Michigan's hoping they can hold on to him, but I, I think there will be some kind of punishment that comes with this. I'm just curious to see, um how serious it is and how serious really the situation is and, and what does come out of it as well yeah you do kind of get the sense of right now at least the this initial punishment is just a little bit of a slap on the wrist i mean he can come back for the big 10 championship game now granted you know there were two big games there are two big games here on this back portion of michigan's schedule one of them the first test they've already gotten by in uh, Penn State, and then they'll have Ohio State in a in a couple of weeks. So we'll see if the NCAA continues to pursue this in the off season, and 
what they deem necessary, what they deem fit for this upcoming year. But I think at least for the 2023 season, Michigan can just focus on on moving forward and trying to make their push for the college football playoff. You know, I, I just going back to, to the whole Stallions thing and from his perspective, it's like if Harbaugh doesn't know anything or he's not involved in this in any way, shape or form, it's like, well, then don't you have to question why is Connor Stallions doing this in the first place? Right. If, you know, if Harbaugh's got no knowledge of it or if it's not, you know, then how is how is Connor Stallions gaining from it? Like, what's the point of, of doing all this? Where that, there's that, smoke, the there's fire. I keep asking myself. Yeah, that's what I keep asking myself in my head. But no, I think you're um, on it. It's it's like I said, where there's smoke, there's fire. There has to be something there with the way all the signs are pointing. This doesn't seem like it's something that just happened on accident, <laughs> right? No, no. <laughs> and and maybe you know maybe there are other teams like maybe Ohio State, maybe Georgia you know, Notre Dame, Clemson, all, you know, top dogs in college football, maybe they are all doing it, but they were, they were more discreet than, than Michigan was and innocent until proven guilty. I know it's kind of cliche, but that's the situation that we're dealt with. Clearly didn't affect Michigan. I don't know if you saw their game over the weekend, but it clearly didn't affect them. On no, they've, Saturday. Been, they've been awesome this year. They've been really awesome. Um, Let's dive into the rankings. Actually, uh, the, the CFP rankings were released uh, this evening, Tuesday night, November 14th. So we've got a fresh, uh, well, not exactly fresh top four. It's, it's the same four teams, albeit in slightly different order. Uh, Georgia and Ohio State swapped places in the number one and two spots. So the Bulldogs now the number one team in the country, according to the CFP rankings. Ohio State, Buckeyes are number two, followed by Michigan in the three spot. Florida State in the four spot. You've got Washington and Oregon as your five and six teams. And then Texas and Alabama trail behind in seventh and eighth. Bottom of the top, is there anything you disagree with in these rankings? Do you think any team is way out of order? There is one team that I would say should not be in the top four. I would bump them down at least two or three spots. Florida State does not belong as the number four team in the country. Their wins have not been impressive. They are undefeated, but they have had to battle with some bad teams. They had a two-point win against Boston College. It took a late pull away against Duke to win that game. They struggled in an ugly game against Pitt, and they didn't look too hot against Miami. Now, Miami is not necessarily a slouch, but, I mean, they're nowhere near the top threshold of college football. Florida State has just looked wildly unimpressive. I have completely forgot needed overtime at Clemson, a team that's around the 500 mark right now. So, I'm not impressed with Florida state. I do like Jordan Travis as a, as a player and as a quarterback, but the strength of records just not there for me. I mean, let's compare it to Washington and Oregon sitting right behind them. Washington has the same record and has a win over number six, Oregon. That's Oregon's only loss in the year. Washington's fresh off another top 25 win this past week against Utah. I have no idea what the justification is to put Florida state at four over Washington at five. I mean, if those, both those teams went out, you have to put Washington in above Florida State. That's the biggest thing for me. Um, I just, I can't put the ACC up there with the Pac-12, the Big Ten, and the SEC this year with how strong all of those conferences look. I, I, I'd bump Washington, or excuse me, I'd bump Florida State down at least past Washington and Oregon. I'd have them around Texas and uh, I'd also have Alabama. I'd have Alabama over Texas. You had uh, Bama at the eighth slot, Texas at the seven. I'd have Alabama above Florida State 
So I put tech, I put Florida State around like the seven, eight mark and have at least Washington, Oregon, and Bama all above them. Can you justify really though putting Texas behind Alabama when they have the exact same record and Texas beat them head to head earlier in the year? I feel like that section of the rankings, that side of the rankings, Texas being over Alabama, that's correct. I I think that result would hold true again if they matched up one more time. Yeah, so also, I'm just factoring in strength of conference. And when they do these rankings of the college football playoff, head-to-head really doesn't play that much of a factor. It goes to your strength of record, um, who you have on your schedule, who you've beaten, and who you've lost to. And it's an impressive win for, for Texas. I you make a better argument because Ole Miss was in this college football playoff top 10 and Alabama had a win over Ole Miss. I mean, they still do have a win over Ole Miss, but with how bad the Rebels looked against the Bulldogs this past weekend, Ole Miss has fallen a little bit in the rankings. I look at it this way. It might be justified now to have Texas over Alabama with them having the same record and Texas winning the head-to-head. But if both those teams win out, and they're both 12 and one and both conference champions, Alabama is going to leapfrog that. And that's right. going to be because Alabama is going to have to beat Georgia in order to do that. Right. I'm still giving the edge to an SEC team. And I think that that is more valuable than head to head record. And the college football playoff committee has set that precedent that they value the conference that you're in and the strength of your schedule and who you've beaten more than head to head. I'm just looking at that, looking at the the road ahead. And if Alabama knocks off Georgia, they are going to leapfrog Texas. Georgia is overwhelmingly, for me, the team to beat. Michigan may have the best shot of making that happen. I love uh, what Washington is able to accomplish on offense, not just uh, with their quarterback, of course, MPJ, <laughs> the uh, Heisman contender, really good Heisman contender at that, quite possibly. Um leading the race with Bo Nix. And then they've got a couple of really excellent receivers as well um, who can attack you. It's not like they just have one guy they can throw the ball to. They've got a couple so they could spread it around. But when I look at Michigan's defense, they've only allowed 10 points or more three times so far this year. Once to Minnesota when they won 52 to 10, once in a 41 to 13 victory against Purdue. And then they gave up 15 points to Penn State in their 24-15 win this past weekend. I would love to see that matchup at the end of the year. The real question for me is, I mean, who's going to win between Michigan and Ohio State? I would say Michigan, even with all this other stuff going on behind the scenes. And is Oregon going to be able to find a way to leapfrog Washington? Something has got to give right now for both of those teams because they're both from the outside looking in. And it, you can make a case for either team. Washington had the head-to-head win between them. They're 10-0. and 0. It was only a three-point game. Otherwise, I don't think there's too much wrong with this top eight, I would say. Um, I understand why they moved Michigan, why, why they have uh, Georgia at one instead of Ohio State. I, I wouldn't hate having Michigan at two instead of the Buckeyes. I've talked them up already enough. But otherwise, I think it's Washington. I would probably put a four over Florida State. Otherwise, I think it's fine, honestly. Yeah, I kind of walked into this uh, past college football 
week thinking that there was not really a dominant team in college football. No one had overly impressed me. And I walked out of the week thinking that there are two dominant teams, those teams being Georgia and Michigan. Uh, let me touch on Michigan first because we, we've kind of been talking about them a little bit more throughout the podcast. The only knock on Michigan, really, and you brought up the uh, only 10 points given up in, in three contests so far this year. The only knock on them really coming into this past week against Penn State was just the fact that they had not played a ranked team. Penn State is the first ranked team that they have played on their schedule, and they won that game handily. That touchdown that Penn State scored was late. It was in garbage time. And the Wolverines had this one pretty much the whole way. Some poor coaching by Penn State throughout. James Franklin continues his struggles against top 10 teams. He's now 3-17 and 17 against top 10 opponents. But Michigan was so dominant in this game that J.J. McCarthy did not have to attempt a pass in the second half. I don't know if you knew that. He was Damn. only 7 for 8 on the day. And it was just a ground and pound for Michigan. Their defense was locked down. And they run the rock extremely well. And that can be a very frustrating style, especially for, you know, some of the more um, high run and gun offenses like a Washington or like an Oregon, if they were to square up against one of those teams in the college football playoff. So Michigan came out of here really looking good. I agree. They should be two over Ohio State, um, but Ohio State does still have a couple of impressive wins on their schedule. They beat Penn State themselves, also knocked off Notre Dame in South Bend. My number one team, though, is still Georgia. They are the back-to-back -back defending national champions, and somehow I think they are—they have still been disrespected, maybe now up until this most recent rankings where they are the number one team in the country. They embarrassed, embarrassed Ole Miss. Ole Miss was the top 10 college football playoff team coming in, and Georgia rushed for 300 yards against them. It was absolute domination. Georgia reminded us why they are the back-to-back -back national champions, there's been some knocks on Carson Beck. I don't think he's a great quarterback, but you know what? He only needs to make a couple of good throws a game, and he did that. He threw an absolute seed to Lad McConkey for their first touchdown. It looked like this game was going to be kind of a shootout, which is the type of game that Ole Miss definitely wanted to play. It was 14-14 midway to early in the second quarter, and then Georgia's defense shut down. They shut down Ole Miss. They got a late turnover in the second half. They got the ball to start, uh, excuse me, late turnover in the first half. Got the ball to start the second half, and it was over from there. So they really flexed their muscles. So I, I leave this week thinking it's Georgia, then Michigan, slight gap there, and then there's a big gap between Michigan and everybody else. Um, the only other thing I did want to mention, you talked about uh, can Oregon leap free, leapfrog Washington. Those two teams, if everything plays out the way it looks like, they'll play each other in the Pac-12 championship. So the winner of that would theoretically have a fast track to a potential college football playoff berth. So my favorite stat of this whole thing, Georgia, since a loss to Florida on November 7th, 2020, is 43-1. 43-1 in three years. I know what that one loss is, by the way. To Alabama. Mm -hmm. And the uh, SEC championship. Season. Yeah. Yeah. The SEC championship game. And they play each other again in a few weeks. That game is now set in stone. Alabama certainly had a more talented team when that happens. But it really speaks to the dominance of this Georgia Bulldogs football program and, and what Kirby Smart has been able to mold them into. 
And if they can finish out this year strong, if they can win out, Kirby's going to start making his case for the best college football coach of this era. It's getting there. I think he's one more national championship away. I mean, if you go basically, you know, two and a half years, almost three years undefeated, who else is there, right? Am I crazy? I mean, yeah, you're a little bit crazy. It's it's a dominant stretch. I mean, that would still just be his third – championship uh at least as a head coach but i mean saving in a row 43 yeah but i mean it's 2020 yeah but when you look at the the pure volume of it saving's got six i believe seven seven national titles i mean there's still that's still like half of it you know i mean three in a row super impressive i mean this might be the best three-year stretch or the best stretch that we've ever seen or you know dating back you know 40 50 years I don't necessarily I, – I can't just solely looking at a three-year stretch put Kirby Smart above what Nick Saban's done in in his career. I just can't. Saban's well, still the best. I'm there with you. He's not there yet, like I said. But if he can get that third championship this year and make it three straight, I think the argument starts, uh, especially considering he's in a conference with Nick Saban, and he's beating out Saban for some of those championships. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Certainly some uh, exciting college football days ahead for us. Uh, Some real quick notes on the Heisman uh, Trophy odds before we move over to the NFL side of things. Uh, Right now, the top three contenders for the Heisman in order, Bo Nix, who's actually the favorite at minus 110 odds on FanDuel Sportsbook, Michael Penix Jr. at plus 370, and Jaden Daniels also at plus 370. I... Washington has the edge over Oregon and the wins record, but if you look at Bo Nix's stats this year, they're just ridiculous. Uh, He's only thrown two picks on the season. Um, Yes, they came up a little bit short in that game against Washington. I personally have never loved him as a big game quarterback, but his experience at the college level has showed this year, 29 TDs to two picks over the past two seasons. He's got 58 touchdowns and nine interceptions He's going to, he's over 3000 yards already this year. He's probably going to go over 3,500 yards could even touch 4,000 depending on how the rest of the year goes for the ducks. So credit to Bo Nix, man. I, I, I have not sung Bo Nix's praises for a lot of his college career. Uh, Our Gamecocks have taken him down a few times when he uh, was in an Auburn uniform, but he's found a home with the ducks and the green and gold. The, the Nike headquarters <laughs> and uh, he's the favorite for the Heisman right now. I, I Jaden Daniels had an awesome week, uh, awesome game against Florida for LSU. And, and he kind of triggers a little bit of the hot button for me, but if your team's that far out of the CFP race, you have to have a truly incredible season to win the Heisman. Yeah. That does factor in your team success a little bit. Bonex better have experience, man, because I tell you what, he's been in college as long as Tim Riggins was at, uh, and Friday Night Lights. Those guys, have, he's been around, Bo Nix has, but good for him. He has put together some great, great seasons uh, in an Oregon Duck uniform. So good for him. We'll, we'll see how it plays out. It's still still far away from finish. We got two more regular season weeks and then conference championship week. So a lot of stuff can still shake up. You saying, you bringing up Tim Riggins there makes me realize Bo Nix would be the perfect future quarterback for the new orleans saints need that future to happen <laughs> we just need that him and you never know him and Taysom hill trading out snaps 
fosse ele. Switching from college football to the NFL now. Um, rough weekend for the Hawbaugh brothers, Commissioner Kashak. Very rough weekend for both John and Jim Harbaugh. Uh, Baltimore Ravens losing 33-31 to the Cleveland Browns. This was the matchup I was looking forward to the most from last weekend. And it didn't disappoint. It was a little bit of a wacky game, for sure. Uh, very back and forth. Cleveland ended up coming back and winning it when... They started off down 17-3 in the first quarter. And the AFC North continues to just be a bloodbath. It feels like week to week, either of those teams could beat each other. Just making it out of that division might kill so much of your energy (laughs) that I don't know how much of a playoff run those teams will be able to make afterwards. Uh, But they're all excellent teams, and, and credit to the Browns, man. And Deshaun Watson, 14 for 14 in the second half. Unreal start to uh, to the NFL weekend, for sure. Yeah, man. Uh, you, you do make a great point that this is uh, one gauntlet of a division, as we've talked about throughout the past couple of weeks. And you do wonder how much it will wear these teams down come January time of the playoffs. But I'm sure none of them are worrying about the playoffs right now. You know, they just need to worry about week by week uh, because there's a lot of divisional matchups coming up in the second half of the season. This upcoming week, uh, the Steelers play the Browns and the Ravens play the Bengals. So they're going to be right back at it in smash mouth AFC North football. Um, I think both quarterbacks here uh, left a little bit to be desired. You mentioned Deshaun Watson had a good second half, but his first half was abysmal. They both threw pick sixes in this one. Uh, Lamar had two picks overall. So I, I think both teams kind of were had to be a little bit concerned with how their quarterbacks played. It wasn't really the caliber of play that can take you deep in the playoffs if you're looking at just this game in terms of a microcosm of the whole season. I don't know if that's how you saw it as well there. It's a tale of two halves with Deshaun, man. I still don't really know. I still have no idea how to rate him and what to expect from him week in and week out. Yeah, absolutely. I almost felt like Deshaun and Lamar switched bodies at halftime or something. I mean, Deshaun was terrible in the first half. I think he started out one of nine for 19 yards in a pick. He had the pick six on on the second play of the game. Uh, Lamar, he, he was pretty decent in the first half, but they weren't really relying on him for the big plays. They got lucky with some turnovers. <clears throat> Keaton Mitchell made some big plays for them. That's really what the Ravens flashed to me is just their big play potential, not just in the run game, but also through passes as well. And I'm surprised Cleveland was able to overcome the deficit they put themselves in. Their defense really played phenomenally down the stretch and showed me that they are a team that is very difficult to run the clock out on because of how solid their defense is. They can still force turnovers when you do pass it anyways. We saw that a few times. They deflected six of Lamar's passes today. And it wasn't like those were a lot of those deflections were almost catches. They were playing really excellent defense. Lamar had some good throws there and and just couldn't convert them because there were guys in coverage on his receivers. The Browns seem like they have a serviceable running back committee as well with Ford and Kareem Hunt. And the fact that they have a 
record right now at six and three with the quarterback issues they've had, I think is a testament more to the talent of their team than something that should have us saying, well, they don't have a chance down the stretch because uh, they have Deshaun Watson and and he's been injured and, and so on and so on. I think that there's still room for him to improve and we could see some of that. We definitely saw it in the second half of that game where he was 14 for 14. Uh, he had the touchdown pass, had a uh, couple plays with his legs as well. It wasn't the biggest reason why the Browns won that game. The defense really helped him out a ton. I've got faith in them and, and I'd be scared to play them down the stretch. The, the Bravens, I feel similarly about. You've got Miles Garrett, a guy who's probably the front runner for defensive player of the year at this point, and a future Hall of Famer. They have Dustin Hopkins, who at this point has the most field goals made and attempted in the league as a kicker, which I'm not saying that's their biggest offensive weapon, but they've been able to win these games similarly almost to how the Steelers do it, but in a little bit of a different way where they just get themselves in field goal range, they put some points up, and they bet on on their defense and themselves that they're going to keep you from matching their point total. Yeah, the Steelers aren't the worst comparison of a team to the Browns. Um, the other guy that you, you didn't mention on the defensive side of the ball for them, I think deserves a shout out. Greg Newsome, cornerback for them, who actually had the pick six Absolutely. to get them back into this game. This, I also love the point that you made about how they're they're a difficult team to to kind of kneel down and run the clock out against. This was a game where Baltimore should have been able to do that. They're, Baltimore's up two touchdowns here with just over nine minutes to go in this game. Now, the pick six is obviously a splash play that gets you right back into things here. But Baltimore's at home here, up by two scores in the fourth quarter. They have to close this game out. So Deshaun is still an issue for me here just because, because of how bad that first half was. Um you know, I still don't know if they can come back against Mahomes in the playoffs or uh, let's t- take a Miami team if they can get there and they they get out and score a ton of points early on. I, you know, you do, I don't know if you're going to be able to dig out of the holes because of that. The defense can win you games like this in the regular season. I don't think it's sustainable like the Steelers. But what I will say is this is I don't see the Browns giving up big chunk yards and, and like gashes of yards like the Steelers defense does. And for that reason, their their model can be a little bit more sustainable. I don't know if they force as many turnovers here uh, as the Steelers, but you can see they get a timely turnover here and it ultimately leads to, to them coming back in the game. Um, huge game in the AFC North to kind of swing the swing the balance. If Baltimore gets this win, they're kind of running away with the division, you know, because they're going to distance themselves from Cleveland uh, by a further game. They're going to have the tiebreakers work in their favor. And now everything's completely jumbled back in the AFC North with uh, the Ravens only have a half game lead over the Steelers and Browns. You now have tiebreakers over them. Got a tough game against Cincinnati on a short week coming up. So, uh, you know, you talk about something flipping on a dime, and it was the AFC North in general, not just the Browns-Ravens game. My only counterpoint to you saying that you don't think the Browns would be able to work out of holes in the playoff games against teams with better quarterbacks would be that they kind of just did that. The Ravens are up 24-9. I I wasn't expecting Deshaun to – I thought the game was over at the half, legitimately. I thought the Ravens were going to win by, like, 40 or something, and they're down – 24-17, 24-17, and then it's 31-17 even going into the end of the third. They get that touchdown to make it 31-24. Uh, they had that blocked field goal earlier in the game, the, the pick six to end up making it a 31-30 game. I don't know. I, I just – I would hate to play them, and that's 
kind of what I'm trying to think about more so, especially in the AFC where you have these teams with quarterbacks. I mean, I was going to say the Bills. We'll get to them. They're out of the playoff race now. It's funny that that was one of the first teams I thought of. The AFC playoff race looks absolutely ridiculous right now, man. It's Anybody could be in any seed from three or four on down almost. So a lot is still up in the air here for sure. Uh, let's move on to our next big game. We've got Houston and Cincinnati tying in another AFC North team into our conversation. This was Cleveland, I think, had the best win of the week, the most important win, but Houston had a huge win here too coming off of uh, last weekend where they had as much hype as they did surrounding their offense and, and C.J. Stroud. I thought maybe there was a chance they would tail off a little bit and that hype would fade. Maybe they weren't going to have quite as strong as a game, but this almost mimics the script of, of their win against Tampa. They were down, uh, they were up 10, seven at half, but it wasn't a very fast paced game until about midway through the quarter. And then both teams had 20 points in the second half, uh, final score Texans, 30 Bengals, 27. Like I said, both quarterbacks threw for 340 plus yards, both had multiple touchdowns. This was a battle and lived up to the hype for sure. Yeah, man, you, you hit the nail on the head. I thought that I really thought this was a good spot for Cincinnati to get Houston. You know, Texans were riding their high of the the five touchdown game from Stroud the previous week. I just thought naturally a young kid, rookie, the NFL always punches back. It, there's ups and downs in any rookie season, even if you are maybe on a fast track to being one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. And, you know, with the exception of that interception in the second half, I mean, Stroud really didn't miss a beat over 350 yards through a touchdown. And most importantly, leads another two minute drill for, for the win. And this one's on the road too, you know, with uh, only a minute 27 to go, it's a huge third down and six pass to Dalton Schultz over the middle to keep that drive alive, get him into midfield. I mean, I, I can't tell you how impressed I am uh, in Stroud. I, I think he's he's catapulting into MVP discussion now. The Texans have catapulted into the into the playoff picture, and he's catapulting into the MVP discussion. There's there's no way that you can have that discussion without him right now with his total stat line. Couldn't agree more. Back to back weeks with game winning drives. This guy's unbelievable. He did it against Joe Burrow, who that's Joe Cool, man. That's that's a big deal. This is like. You have NBA matchups sometimes where you have like a LeBron and KD facing off and you feel like it just means a little bit more. Even though CJ Stroud's a rookie, this game kind of had a little bit of that feel to it where everybody was a little bit more excited going into it because of that quarterback matchup. And Burrow didn't have his best day. He had a couple bad picks on missed throws. They were both thrown on first down as well. One of them was in his own territory, which I didn't love. Uh, very uncharacteristic mistakes from him. Joe Mixon, who's had a slow year all year, only had 13 touches, and they really didn't try to get him involved too much. Um, they were missing T. Higgins, and Jamar Chase being injured affected him a little bit. He wasn't 100%, but he still made some big plays, and he ended up leaving them and receiving. It's simple, man. Stroud just he led his team to a victory and, and he had a lot of help from the run game. Devin Singletary credit to him. Honestly, he, he should be getting more credit for this. Um, he had the Texans first hundred yard rush game running game as a running back 
in 17 games. That's a whole season's worth of games without having a 100 yard rusher. And he had 150 on the day. So maybe Stroud being able to throw the ball down the field like he's capable of opens up the running game a little bit. And if they have that extra dimension to their offense, they're going to be a very difficult team to keep from putting three, four touchdowns on the board, regardless of what defense you have on your side. Yeah. And that's, and that's a discouraging point too, for the Cincinnati Bengals defense, the defense we were talking up a little bit last week, they're 30th uh, in opponent yards, uh, opponent rush yards per game. Uh, hasn't been good. And the Texans are only 25th in, in rush yards per game on offense on their end. You talked about how long it had been since they had a hundred yard rusher. It's a makeshift O-line they got too. And Cincinnati still, still lost that in the trenches with Singletary's big day, averaging five yards per carry. So that's something that they're going to have to get wrapped up come playoff time. And especially as they even just try to make the playoffs because they are, have a ton of games, as I mentioned, against AFC North opponents in the second half of the season here. And all of the AFC North teams love to run the football. And that's what they're going to do against the Bengals because it seems like that's the crack that you can expose in their defense. Um, I did just want to also point out one thing about Joe Burrow, uh, as we were talking about, it may not have been his best stat line with the two picks, but let's not beat around the bush when it comes to him. He absolutely did everything he could for the Bengals to win this game. The, Loss, in some ways, is on Tyler Boyd. Burrow throws an absolute dime to him on third down and goal that Boyd drops in the end zone. It would have been a touchdown. Yeah, I saw if that. He hauls, if he hauls that in, you now have a – I think it would have been a four-point lead at the time because they, they were down three. And now Stroud and the Texans have to go for a touchdown and can't just settle for a field goal. Maybe Stroud would have been able to pull one out of his hat, but it's a completely different complexion of the game there. So – Burrow, once again, in my eyes, does everything that he needs to in uh, in the fourth quarter and beyond to for this Bengals team to win. But I'm concerned about that rush defense going forward. Here's a stat for you with Cincinnati's defense. This, In my research over the last couple of days, this really stood out to me. So they're second worst in the league in opponent red zone scoring attempts per game. So think about what that means. They, they basically are allowing four – red zone scoring attempts every single game. They're letting the other team get into the red zone four times. Good teams, really good teams, that's three touchdowns. Average teams, that's maybe 17 points, maybe maybe 13. That can make a huge difference in games, especially in playoffs. Uh, so that's – we were hyping up their defense a lot last week, and, and that was because their defense had had a few big games, but – they have this game against the Texans, and I look some more into it, and maybe we overlooked some things. Denver-Buffalo. This was our Monday night game. So we're recording this on Tuesday evening. It's panic time in Buffalo, officially. If if I wasn't going to say it, the Bills practically said it for themselves when they fired their offensive coordinator earlier today, a move that I didn't think they necessarily had to make. It kind of seemed like they panicked. Uh by making that move, but ultimately 24-22, they lost a game they definitely shouldn't have with some coaching errors, with some more turnovers on offense. Paul, who are you pointing the fingers at in Buffalo right now? Um, everybody, really. I mean, the offense didn't secure the ball. Josh Allen had, what did he have, two picks? He did have two picks. Uh, he might have lost a fumble himself as well. James Cook, 
couldn't hold on to the ball last night. Um, you know, I think everybody deserves some blame. The, the defense didn't do a great job of corralling Russell Wilson when he escaped from the pocket and then coaching as well, man. You, how do you have 12 men on the field on the final kick of the game? That, that's reprehensible. That is all coaching right there. You know, Sean McDermott has really kind of failed to, to do a lot with what's been a juggernaut of a team over the past couple of years. And you go back to the the 13 second game against Kansas city. Like that's all coaching right there. That should never happen. What happened at the end of the game against Denver should never happen. It's, it's a team loss from the, from the top down, from the coach down to the, to the last player on the bench in my eyes. This, I could not believe this game finished the way that they did. I, I sent a stat, a stat in our uh, text threads, with some other football friends earlier in the day that the bills, I think were like nine and two coming off of losses in the last three years, something like that. It might've been nine and three. And Allen was held to less than 200 total yards for the second time all season. They had four turnovers as an offense. Allen had three of them. And Russ Wilson, on the other hand, was, it was phenomenal. 24 for 29 passing two touchdowns, no interceptions. He wasn't, throwing the ball deep down the field. He only had 193 yards, but he didn't really make any mistakes hardly at all. And it seemed like every other drive Denver's getting shut down on third down on like the 30 something. And they end up kicking a field goal. And up until probably the start of the fourth quarter, you're thinking, well, Bills are going to find a way to win this. Right. And actually they did the exact opposite. Uh, That field goal play was just, ridiculous i mean i i don't think there's a play that has really summed up one team to this point in the season more so than that the bills just haven't been able to stay out of their own way for one reason or another and it was funny too because denver set up that kick very weirdly they didn't have any timeouts left i think there was like 19 seconds on the clock maybe 20 less than 20 i'm pretty sure They take a knee, they run the field goal team out there. The kicker is literally sprinting to get in place. He rushes his setup for the kick and misses. And the flag comes in. So Sean Payton almost out-tricked himself, but they have the 12th man out there on the field, which was an unintended outcome, I think, of that kind of rush-in, rush-out sequence. But it ended up really working out to the Broncos benefit. And now we crossed off Denver last week when we talked about potential playoff or non-playoff teams and they're still from the outside looking in, but the biggest thing really is that the bills are 500. They're five and five and they're barely in second place in the AFCs. They could have been third at this point. And and it feels like they almost should be uh, considering the jets actually beat them head to head earlier in the year. Yeah, I, I'm not willing to call Denver a, a playoff team yet by any stretch. And I'm also on the converse, not willing to say Buffalo is, is out of it yet. I would be panicking if I were them just because they are five and five. They don't have a tiebreaker over Cincinnati, another team they'll be competing with. Uh, so, you know, things aren't going great. And it's just the way that they're losing games is ugly. But I still know that that Josh Allen's best can compete with just about any anybody. And so for that reason, I, you know, I can't look at any game on their schedule and just automatically count them out. Um, I think you made a great point about Denver, if we go back to them, about how they almost kind of tricked themselves on, on that field goal. I hated the way they managed the clock 
as well. I, I understand with uh, their utilization of the timeouts there, but I'd say just kick the um, kick the field goal after you take the knee on, I think it would have been second down there. Just kick the field goal with like 20 seconds to go and, and then, you know, play defense because you do run the risk of now not being not having time to set everything up, rushing your kicking unit out there and rushing your kicker's process. And what happens, ultimately, he does miss. He just gets bailed out by Sean McDermott on the other side, not having his special teams unit ready to go. So I, I didn't really love either coach, really, in this game on that side. I said that I still think Buffalo can be fine and, and can make the playoffs just because of how talented their quarterback is capable of playing. The reason that I'm not there with Denver, even though they do have now wins over Kansas City and Buffalo – Look at the circumstance in which they won. Okay, we had we talked a couple of weeks ago about the Patrick Mahomes flu game. So he had the flu game. And they win a, a weird like seventeen and nine type deal, and then here it takes like four or five turnovers from Buffalo for them to just win by one field goal. And let's let's remember too that they wasted a lot of good starting field position spots as well. Russ was much better. I thought that he was great at improvising this game, but like. We still, that's still not the rush that we saw in Seattle. You know, you talked about it. he was under 200 yards to do some good scrambling. But Denver's really had to have everything break their way to pull off these wins. And while be it that while they are impressive, I still need to see way more from them before saying, all right, this is the team that's going to start making a push in the second half of the season to get a wild card. I don't know if Josh Allen's really been at, had a moment like this in his career yet. And they've got their work cut out for him next. They face the Jets next week, who they've already lost to once. They, they should beat them, you would think, but who knows. And then after that, they've got the Chiefs, Eagles, and Cowboys. So they really have this one chance against the Jets where it now feels like you absolutely have to get a win before you face the gauntlet of three of the maybe five or six best teams in the league. Uh, there's a world where they're five and nine a month from now and don't have a head coach. So I don't know. I think anything can happen with them. I, I really feel like it's almost like a flip of a coin, what their fate is a month from now. Yeah. I wouldn't go so far as to say five and nine, but um, let me say this. If they are five and nine, Sean McDermott will not be on the sideline. That, that is, that is for damn sure. Next game, San Francisco and Jacksonville. This was another game I was looking forward to a lot. I had uh, Jags plus three as one of my best bets of the week jokes on me not such a great bet after all I'm i a little bit inside <laughs> i could not have been more wrong this was terrible i mean jacksonville got curb stomped in this game and the biggest reason why was san francisco's d-line chase young added into the mix there opened the floodgates for them they really had struggled honestly as a d-line earlier uh or at least to that point in the season they hadn't been as effective or as dominant as folks had expected them to be and in this game they end up with five sacks tied for their second tied for the most that they've had in a game all year when they had five against your Pittsburgh Steelers in the opening week of the season uh, this was also the healthiest they looked all year when they had Debo Trent Williams back on the field they basically added Debo Trent Williams and Chase Young at the deadline and sure Christian McCaffrey's touchdown streak ended Everybody else scored a touchdown. Basically, that matters on offense. And it's 
insane because they had that stretch of three losses and everybody was saying, oh, they're they're done. You can't rely on Purdy and so on and so on. And it's just typical how we react to games in the NFL where we see your lowest of lows and we think your season's all but over. And then we see you the next week come out and beat a pretty good team by 30 and we're singing your praises. So San Francisco, obviously we know the talent they have on their roster. It's going to be a matter of whether or not they can stay consistent and keep having performances like this from their defense. I think staying consistent goes hand in hand with staying healthy. You mentioned that everybody was back. The sheer volume of talent that they have on both sides of the ball, I think supersedes any other team in the NFL. You know, Purdy can go with the ball to Kittle. He can go with it to Debo. He can check it down to McCaffrey. Brandon Ayuk is a really talented receiver you didn't mention. So, I mean, those are four options right there that just not every team has three legit pass-catching options and then also a great running back to go with it. It's certainly enough talent to mask the inconsistencies or imperfections of Brock Purdy, and we we saw it. We saw it today. Jacksonville has had their ups and downs in the past game. They're a much better team against the ground. But all in all, they're not a bad defense. And, you know, San Francisco shreds them for 34. Huge stark contrast as opposed to the past couple of weeks when San Francisco is playing at maybe 50, 75 percent with, with some of their big weapons out. So that's the big thing for me is that just the sheer volume of talent, I think, is too much for defenses to cover everybody. And it always leaves an open and an easy throw for Brock Purdy. So if he's got all of his weapons. I think he'll be clicking. Flip that to the defensive side of the ball. The addition of Chase Young is huge there because now you can't slide extra protection to Nick Bosa's side because you're going to leave Chase Young in so many one-on-one situations and he's going to get home to the quarterback. So I think that it's going to do wonders for Nick Bosa. He's going to see more one-on-ones than double teams. And if they are double teaming and, and sliding extra protection, whether it be a running back or what have you, to Bosa's side to help chip on that side or slide the tight end over to that side per se, you know, Chase Young is going to come home and he's going to get one-on-one options and he's clearly talented enough to win in one-on-one situations there. So yeah, their pass uh, rush was relentless. Trevor Lawrence was under pressure the whole afternoon. That's huge. That's huge. Volume of talent with San Francisco is, is my phrase with them. Did you see some of the mic'd up stuff from that game, the interactions between Young and Bosa on the sidelines? No, I, I didn't catch any of that, but I can imagine that they were, uh, like two peas in a pod just having played together at Ohio State. Oh, my gosh. It was like, I mean, I think it might rival T-Swift and Kelsey for best romance in the NFL. They were so happy to be back on the field together. These guys were like, the whole game, they're like, I'm so happy you're here, so on and so on. And, I mean, they held – not only did they have these sacks and had Lawrence on his back foot or running for his life pretty much the whole game, they held Travis Etienne at 35 yards – less than 50 yards from scrimmage overall. Uh, He had two receptions for nine yards, but only nine carries for 35 yards. And Jacksonville was working behind from behind pretty much the whole game. Christian Kirk was their lone standout. He had six catches for 104 yards. He's been very consistent for them outside of a couple games this year, but this is a gut punch loss for Jacksonville. They'll probably be all right. Probably they're still going to find a way to be a playoff team, but with, Houston emerging in their division and in that matchup against the Texans looming in a couple of weeks, they are really going to have to stay focused and not give up too much more ground because after that Texans game, they face the Bengals, Browns and Ravens back to back to back. So they've got a month of really tough physical games on the horizon. 
Yeah, they and they need to get Calvin Ridley involved. Uh, plain and simple, Christian Kirk, the kind of the only consistent receiver for them. Um, Evan Ingram has stepped up at times for them, but you know, Calvin Ridley was supposed to be a big hitter. I think a lot of people, including myself, especially in fantasy terms, thought he would be the number one receiver in Jacksonville. And that's fine if Kirk is still the guy, just with Lawrence having worked with him more the past couple of years. But, you know, Ridley needs to step up as a viable number two option. He only had three targets today. I mean, that's that, that can't happen. You need to have a solid number two to throw to. And, and I don't Lawrence doesn't have that consistently week in, week out with Calvin Ridley. So that's a problem for them as well. Uh, San Francisco has Tampa Bay at home next on their schedule. Then they travel to the Seahawks uh, for their last game in November. They've got a couple other tough games left on their schedule. They have a matchup in Philly in early December and a matchup against the Ravens, actually, Christmas night. So that's a little Christmas Day treat for you football fans coming up. Uh, We've got another game to talk about here, Detroit and L.A. The Chargers falling short in this one, uh, 41-38, the final score. This felt like a seven-on-seven game. I mean, there there was running plays, but – both teams were just boom, 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 trading punches, total shootout. Uh, the air attacks for both these teams were really on point. And Jameer, Jamar Gibbs, David Montgomery combining for almost 200 yards. Jared Goff was lights out in this game. Their defense is definitely some cause for concern, but the Chargers are a high-octane offense, man. Uh, Keenan Allen's having a career year, 11 catches for 175 yards today, two touchdowns. Herbert, I know that there was some talk a few weeks ago about his turnovers, but the Chargers have the second lowest turnover rate in the NFL, and he's been a big part of that. He's actually playing really well this year. He had four touchdowns in this game. He kept them in it. They're still trying to figure out a way to to get Eckler fully back to 100% Austin Eckler, but he was pretty close in this game. Four catches, 48 yards, 19 carries, 67 yards on the grounds. Detroit's a hell of a team, man. They're a two seed at the moment. They deserve it. They've got a manageable schedule the next month and change. I think there's an outside chance they could be a one seed with some of the games that the Eagles have to play down the stretch. Both teams were really excellent in the red zone and third down, fourth down situations. It wasn't the right matchup teams wise, but if this was the kind of game we had in in an AFC, NFC championship or Super Bowl where we just have these two offenses slugging it out. I wouldn't mind that at all. So in terms of eye candy for an NFL game, this was great. Lions probably uh, have some work that they really want to do on defense and and some holes they want to patch up, but I think they should feel really good about this win overall. Yeah, man, this was a game that when you saw this on the schedule, you you just, you want to have as many fantasy guys in it as possible. (laughs) You knew it was going to be electric and, and it, it, what did provide some eye candy. However, I did not leave this game feeling quite as good about Detroit as, as you did a couple reasons why first is the defense. I think this is the third time now off the top of my head that I can recall where they've really been gashed defensively. Seattle, put up over 30 against them earlier in the year. Baltimore, of course, obliterated them a couple weeks back. And now the Chargers put up 38 here. And also, I don't know if they have the ability to – I don't know if they have a corner that can can lock down a top dog receiver. You saw how well Keenan Allen did. I think Cam Sutton was on Keenan Allen a couple times, maybe C.J. Gardner-Johnson as well. I know Cam Sutton was their big free agent acquisition from the Steelers. 
in free agency. And, and he's a solid corner, but I don't know if he's of the talent level to cover the top dog receivers. And in the playoffs, they're going to face guys like C.D. Lamb. They're going to face guys like A.J. Brown. And I hesitate and I'm, I'm unsure whether their secondary can hold up against some of those high octane passing attacks. Their offense was was electric and especially on the ground. I, Jameer Gibbs and Devon, uh, David Montgomery really provided a great one two punch. Um, I was surprised actually how well Montgomery ran coming back in his first week from from injury there. Although Jameer Gibbs did out touch him in uh, early season carries, which I think should be the case going forward. Um, can't argue with Montgomery's yards per carry, though, 9.7 and Gibbs with 5.5. The other reason, though, that I'm a little bit concerned is and I love Dan Campbell. So let me preface what I'm about to say with that. I absolutely love the energy that he's instilled in that Lions team, uh, the life that he's given that fan base. and I, His guys clearly play hard for him. However, it, I have to question his decision making a little bit. Everything worked out on the on their last drive, but they are sitting inside the 30 yard line on a fourth down and two at like the 27, 28 kick the field goal there. I, I know that they they go for it on fourth and two and Goff hits Sam Laporta for a first down and they have an easier field goal from there. But that raises some concerns to me because that's a clear situation where you should just kick and take the three point lead at the end of the game there. And if you don't have confidence in your kicker, then Riley Patterson shouldn't be on the Lions. That game is inside. It's in L.A. and it's within 50 yards. Every NFL kicker, every coach should have confidence in their NFL kicker to make a kick inside within 50 yards. And if you don't have confidence in your kicker to do that, you need to go out and find a new kicker. So I question his decision making there. I questioned it a couple times in the, the game against the Raiders on Monday night a couple of weeks back. They've had some struggles in the red zone. I want to see if that adds up against a little bit better of a coach team in the playoffs. You know, the Chargers are not the best coach team. I think Brandon Staley might be on his way to that um, coaching firing carousel that we might get into later. A couple areas of concern there. I, I didn't I didn't leave this one feeling great about the Lions. It was good that they got the win, but not feeling great. With that being said, let me flash you back to week three of the 2022 season. In this game, the Detroit Lions had an opportunity to kick a 54-yard field goal with one minute, 14 seconds left when they were up 24-21. They ended up kicking the field goal, and then after kicking the ball back to Minnesota, they end up losing the game 28-24. After the game, Dan Campbell in the press conference said he hated that he made the decision to go for the field goal and he would never do it again. He said, I should have gone for it, kept the ball and secured the win. And I think him making that decision in that game Sunday proved that he's going to stand by that decision every time. And I actually agreed with it completely because of the reasons he laid out in that press conference after that week three loss last year. They could have had that. If they had won that game last year, they're probably a playoff team last season. I love Dan Campbell. He would be my choice for coach of the year. I know you love Kevin O'Connell. We're going to get into the Vikings here really, really shortly. But the belief that Dan Campbell has instilled in every member of his team, he's turned Jared Goff into a borderline all-pro quarterback, man. Like, who would have thought we would be saying that three, four years ago? I love the Lions. And – the one positive, the biggest positive you can look for from this game is that they actually won in a shootout where they needed to put up points 
to win. They hadn't done that yet in those games where they gave up a lot of points. It's not a way you want to rely on winning football games, and their defense does need to get a lot better. Ultimately, a win is a win, and this is a win that's going to pay off for them down the stretch, especially when they've got this Vikings team hot on their heels that they're going to have to face a couple of times uh, down the stretch here. So credit to the Lions. Uh, for Chargers fans, they're still scratching their heads, and and Brandon Staley is definitely starting to rub some people the wrong way there. I feel bad for Herbert, man. Uh, you know, he does everything every week in and week out. He's a great quarterback, and his defense has just never helped him out. Never helped him out, man. They've, they, they've given up 26 points per game since Herbert has taken over as the starter. You know, he, he needs to be nearly perfect every and game. They, and they have, haven't they scored 26 points per game too? <laughs> yeah, no, they, they, their point differential is like identical since, since Herbert's taken over. It's like 1,500 to 1,500 points. That's um, crazy. It's just not much more you can do. He has four touchdowns and over 300 yards today. And he still loses. That's, that's brutal. We, we mentioned the Saints briefly there. I, you want to dive into that game next? Saints, uh, not Saints, uh, Vikings, Vikings, Saints. I just want to talk up my man's Kevin O'Connell. You already, you gave the teaser to it. Kevin O'Connell and, and Josh Dobbs, the greatest quarterback coach duo in NFL history. That might be a little <laughs> bit, that might be a little bit extreme, but. The past or not. Uh, 27, 2019, 27-19 win, excuse me, for the Vikings over the Saints. They're up 24-3 at the half. Uh, Carr went out in the third quarter. And after, I mean, after that, it was pretty much game over. Uh, the Saints did make a comeback thanks to some crazy play from Jameis Winston. But yeah, man, Kevin O'Connell, Josh Dobbs, they've got the Vikings rocking and rolling. Yeah, um, they had this one from the jump. And, and Jameis did kind of lead some sort of a comeback, but I think it just speaks volumes to like how quickly Dobbs is picking up this offense again. I mean, let, let's not like... I know I don't think people are going to give him credit for that this week just because he was learning on the fly last week. And that was such a big story last week. But I mean, he's had less than two weeks in this offense to learn. And he puts up 27 points against a solid Saints defense here. Throws for over 250 yards and a touchdown. Not gaudy numbers, but but good nonetheless. Um, They're hurting at running back. I know Madison got hurt in this game. uh, So we'll see. I think Ty Chandler is going to have to carry the load going forward. But he was good, I mean, though. He was good when he came in. I actually liked him a little better than Madison, honestly. Uh, they, I think their run game has kind of struggled this year in general. Um, it I, has. You know, the, the Dalvin Cook, let Dalvin Cook go. I, I kind of get why they're doing it just because running backs get hurt so much and you don't want to pay them. But I, I think it has kind of shown up for them. But what like what's new, dude? I mean, they're, they're, they're surviving another injury. I Like it just goes to show how good of a job Kevin O'Connell is doing. Justin Jefferson might be back this week. You know, they're missing him. Kirk's obviously out. And now they're down to their their backup running back as well. And they're six and four. Like, it's nothing. You know, that that's, that's coach of the year caliber stuff right there. They get hit with one thing after another, and they just keep winning games. You did mention Carr left this game and that Jameis Winston came in. Watching him play quarterback is like watching quarterbacking on meth. It's ridiculous. Or like someone playing arcade mode in Madden where they're just like heaving the ball down the field. And, and sometimes it gets turned into a pick six. Sometimes it's a pass that gets tipped seven times and it turns into a 90-yard touchdown. I was kind of surprised they didn't give Taysom some more snaps under center once the game got closer. But they kept rolling with Jameis and... He ended up throwing two interceptions down the stretch that sealed the loss for the Saints. 
If Carr can't play next week, not this coming week because they have a bye week, but the week after, I'd be interested to see what their game plan is as far as quarterback goes or, or who takes snaps, how it plays out. I feel a little bit for the Saints. That that division is really weird. Kudos to the Vikings figuring out a way to win a game again. They were shutouts or uh, they were held to just three points in the second half, which is something I'm a little bit worried about. Maybe there's a chance other teams pick up on those adjustments the Saints made in the second half, and you start to see teams figure out a little bit of what the Vikings do on offense and how they've been able to put Dobbs in positions to succeed. They play the Broncos next week in Denver. Denver is a notoriously tough place to play. I think Dobbs, his mentality and the way he kind of approaches games will help him a lot going into that matchup, but the Broncos are coming off of a huge win again. They're rolling. The Saints have won five straight. They're probably one of the hottest teams in the NFL, but I, I think we've seen this trend now. Vikings won five straight. Vikings, yes, the Vikings. Thank you. But I think we've seen this trend now a few times where we have a team that rolls off on four or five straight wins, and then it ends up where they have a really bad game after. So that bad game is on the horizon for them. I don't know if it's this week. They have the Bears and the Raiders after, so I would say this week is probably the best chance of that happening in the, over the next couple of games. Uh, the next best bet would probably be at the Bengals in Cincinnati a month from now. So unless you think they're going to end up winning eight straight, which they could, they could, I, I'd be a little bit cautious going into that game uh, against the Broncos on Sunday night. Yeah, that'll be a tough environment for them to play in. Uh, back to Jameis, though, before we move on, I, I just think it's hilarious, man. It was the most Jameis Winston stat line we could have possibly gotten. One half of football, not even. He throws for over 100 yards, two touchdowns, two picks. I mean, that's 30-30 Jameis right there. I just I love it. He's a scary quarterback to live and die by. And you live and die by him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally, it's like Five Nights at Freddy's or something. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous. Uh, we got a couple more games I want to hit on. Um, Real quick, Arizona, Atlanta. The Cardinals came back in this game and won 25-23. Uh, Kyler didn't have his best game. He wasn't 100% full-on Kyler Murray, but he looked pretty good. Uh, James Conner came back in the lineup for the Cardinals too, and, and he helped them move the ball a bunch. Uh, Trey McBride was the big story in this game. He had a huge day in the air, and the connection that he and Kyler had looked like something that could be sustainable going forward. Uh, my biggest takeaway from this really is just how terrible and how inept the Falcons are offensively. Ritter and Heineke combined for 70 passing yards on 21 attempts between them. That's even worse than Mac Jones level bad. And that's really bad. The Falcons have had some incredible turnover issues from the quarterback position as well this year. And they don't really have a starter. They don't really have a reliable backup either. I guess maybe they go to Ritter for the next game because he actually looked kind of okay uh, towards the end of, of that game in Arizona. But I don't know, man. They're, they're a really weird group to me. I think maybe Arizona ends up winning a couple more games down the stretch here and, and playing themselves out of a top four or five pick. Uh, Kyler, they look really different with Kyler. Granted, the last quarterback they had – starting a game for them was Clayton Toon, who, let's be honest, shouldn't have been starting a game for them. But he came in for a quarterback sneak, 
in this game, a, a tush push and got a touchdown. So good for Clayton, I guess. Yeah, there's not much to say about this game, really. We know the Falcons struggles when it comes to the quarterback position. Cardinals look better with Kyler Murray. I mean, we'll see. You know, I they're in a little bit of a weird spot with him. I think he's kind of trying out through the second half of the season because um, they are going to be in a position to probably draft a, a pretty good quarterback next year. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I think Justin Fields is kind of in the same spot when it comes to Chicago, but good on Kyler. First game back after the ACL, not going to be perfect, but did certainly enough to to get the win. So credit to him. Uh, I don't want to talk about my team, really. All I'm going to say is Mac Jones. I hope this is the last I've seen of you on a football field ever. That's it. I've said my piece. Bill Belichick has not been fired as of 9.58 p.m., Tuesday, November 14th. Maybe that will change by the time you listen to this. However, your Pittsburgh Steelers commissioner had a wonderful 23 to 19 win against oh. the Green Bay Packers. Wonderful might be being a little, I don't know a little generous. I don't know if you could say any win we've had all year is wonderful, <laughs> but hey, it's it's a win is a win. And you're six and three now. Um, you're a game out of first place in your division. It's another prototypical Mike Tomlin win not a flashy victory your Steelers lead the NFL in turnover differential they only have eight giveaways on the year Kenny is the best quarterback in the league in terms of ball control he has the least amount of turnovers across the league for all quarterbacks the Steelers also have an amazing red zone and situational defense fourth best opponent red zone scoring percentage second best opponent points per game in the fourth quarter and you've got this backfield of Jalen Warren and Najee Harris, you're not winning games like it's 2023. You're winning games like it's 2003. And I don't know how it's working. I was even trying to think before I was going to talk to you about this game, are the Steelers the best bad team ever? Or what's going on here? Because it doesn't make sense that they're at six and three, but they are. And I don't think they're going to slow down. I, I told you before the year, I saw them getting 10 wins. Now that looks like, it's not out of the realm of possibility. I mean, who else do you have to play this year? You've got the Browns, Bengals, but after that, you've got the Cardinals, the Pats, the Colts. That's three wins right there, you would think. And then you have the Bengals, Seahawks, Ravens to end the year. So you got some tough games the next couple of weeks, some tough games at the end of the season. I'd be feeling better if I were you, Paul. I keep trying to brighten your spirits with this team. I feel like the, the more your team wins, the angrier you get. <laughs> I mean, believe me, I'm happy to see them win, uh, as any as any fan would be. I am very happy about one thing that you mentioned. Um, you talked about our running back duo of Jalen Warren and Najee Harris. The way that we have run the football the past two weeks, albeit against bad teams and bad rush defenses, but it has been impressive. Nearly 200 yards against Tennessee last week, and then we hit the 200-yard mark this week. Jalen Warren goes for over 100 yards for the first time in his career. And he's in a complete time split with Najee, who has 86 yards himself and scores. So the running game has looked great. And that is a testament to the offensive line. Broderick Jones is now starting every day or every week at right tackle for us. He was our 14th overall pick, our first round pick last year. So that's been huge. That is the best thing. And I think Matt Canada's play calling has gotten a little bit better. The reason that I'm still not... Um, blown away is because they did force the turnovers and I don't know how sustainable that is, but more so than just kind of getting a timely turnover, which I've deemed to be a little bit luck. 
it, it was against Jordan Love, who hasn't looked great this year. The previous week, it was against Will Levis. Like, I'm still waiting to see them make the really good quarterbacks look bad. I mean, you saw how bad they looked against C.J. Stroud a couple weeks earlier in the year. So that still has me concerned and being cautiously optimistic right now. But the run game is good. I'm hoping to see more of that, and I hope that that continues against a really, really good Cleveland Browns rush defense coming up this week. That could be one of the games of the week for this week, certainly in terms of the possible implications of the result. It's up there. We're going to talk some overreactions here from the previous week of football. It's a pretty simple game. It's called, I don't want to overreact, but dot, dot, dot. Uh, We fill in that dot, dot, dot with, our overreaction. Paul, this is your segment. I'm going to let you take the lead on this. What's your first overreaction from our previous week of NFL football? Thanks for the floor, Patrick. Cue the music. Because I want to start things off with my first overreaction from last week, and that is that the Texans will win the AFC South. I got two reasons why they're going to do it. I'll give you the lesser reason right now. The lesser reason is that they've already beaten Jacksonville. They're only a game back, and they play them once more this year, and that game's going to be in Houston. But you want to know why the real reason that this team is going to win the AFC South is because C.J. Stroud is flat out the better quarterback than Trevor Lawrence. Texans are going to be your 2023 AFC South champions. Next is going to be looking at that same game between the Bengals and Texans. I'm going to look on the converse. I'm going to say the Bengals have dug themselves just a little bit too deep of a hole to even make the playoffs this year. And it's not so much just based on the result of last weekend in which they lost to Houston, and now that has them on the outside looking into the playoffs. It's considering their road ahead. It's an extremely difficult schedule, including road games against Jacksonville, Kansas City, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, and then throw in two more divisional games against Pittsburgh and Cleveland. You know what all of those matchups have in common? They are against teams that are currently in the playoff picture. It's a gauntlet of a schedule for Cincinnati, a team that's already got four losses and on the outside looking in. I think it's going to be too much to overcome. Bengals missed the playoffs this year. Let's shift gears to the NFC now. And I'm going to say that San Francisco is once again the best team in the NFC if they have everybody fully healthy. That includes being a better team than Philadelphia and Dallas. They have just blown out some teams. They blew out Jacksonville. They embarrassed the Steelers. They embarrassed the Cowboys a couple weeks back when they got all their weapons. This is the best team in the NFC. And the other thing that I'm ready to react on is going back to my Pittsburgh Steelers. I talked about how good their offensive line looked. Their defense hasn't been fully healthy, but they're still finding a way to make turnovers. Kenny Pickett is the only thing holding this team back from reaching the next level. They really kind of didn't let him do anything special. He has done a nice job of controlling the ball and not turning it over here throughout the season, but the Steelers really still had training wheels on him. He didn't make uh, many big time throws. He struggled, he still missed receivers. If the offensive line is clicking and they're rushing for nearly 200 yards a game and this defense is forcing turnovers, the only thing that's not getting better in my mind is Kenny Pickett. He's the only thing holding this team back from reaching that elite threshold in the AFC. Next overreaction, and I don't think it's an overreaction at all. Kevin O'Connell, coach of the Minnesota Vikings, is your 2023 coach of the year. I mean, what hasn't this guy done? Justin Jefferson goes down, gets hurt. They lose their quarterback, Kirk Cousins. Josh Dobbs already has a mastery of the offense less than two weeks in as a Minnesota Viking. 
They turned a one and four season into a six and four season right now. They're in playoff position. And don't look now, that NFC North Division title is not out of reach yet. Two games still to play with Detroit. Kevin O'Connell, coach of the year 2023. Next one, we're going to stick in the NFC North. And I talked about this one earlier in the Detroit-Los Angeles breakdown, and it's that Detroit's defense will prevent them from making a deep playoff run this year. They go up against the likes of Dallas with a stout receiver like CeeDee Lamb or Philadelphia with a guy like A.J. Brown. I don't think they'll be able to cover him, and I don't think they'll be able to quell the top offenses of the NFC. Detroit's defense is holding them back from making a run this year. And my last overreaction of the week. This one is going back to the Thursday night game between the Panthers and the Bears, which was an absolute clunker, and there's a reason we didn't talk about it and break it down. But my overreaction here is that Carolina will be the doormat of the NFL for the next five years, so the duration of Bryce Young's rookie contract. And I like Bryce Young, believe me, but I don't see talent around him. His number one go-to option as a receiver is a 33-year-old Adam Thielen in the twilight of his career. Again, love Adam Thielen, but that shouldn't be your top option. I'm not seeing Jonathan Mingo, Terrace Marshall step up. And the number one overall pick just lost to a backup quarterback out of a D2 school named Shepherd College. The Carolina Panthers are going to be the doormat of the NFL for the next five years. All right, we're going to do another little segment here. We're going to be drafting the next coach fired in the NFL. So this is a next coach fired draft. We're going to do three rounds. It's going to be snake style. So... One of us will pick first. The other will get the second and third picks, and so on and so on. Do you want to pick first, or should I go first? How about – actually, I'm going to go first since you led the, you the last segment. Yeah, I'm going to go first. All right, so I made a short list of coaches. I looked at the teams associated with these coaches, and I really tried to think about who I think absolutely needs to make a move, what their schedule looks like the rest of the way. I essentially tried to think about this, not necessarily in, in who's definitely going to be losing their job at the end of the year, but who quite literally is going to be the next coach fired. So the first team, there were two teams that I looked at. Uh, the first for me that I'm going to pick is actually going to be a team I alluded to a little bit earlier. I'm going to go with Matt LaFleur of the Green Bay Packers. Green Bay, so far this year, I mentioned right now, they're in a pretty tough stretch in terms of wins loss record they're three and six on the season the Packers have lost five of their last six games and their next few games are against the Chargers Lions and Chiefs if they lose all three of those games they're going to be sitting at three and nine Jordan Love has not been the guy they thought he was going to be they still have a couple of tough games later on in the year I think it's it's almost time for them to make a move and I wouldn't be surprised if they did um They've gone away from Aaron Jones in the running game. He's not getting a lot of touches. Matt LaFleur, the Green Bay Packers, you heard it here first. He is going to be your next coach fired in the National Football League. Paul, you're up next. Who you got? Matt LaFleur is not a bad one. A lot of struggles in Green Bay. Um, I'm going to go with kind of an old reliable like guy I feel like that we've been talking about, or at least that the media has been talking about, potentially firing for a couple years now. And I'm going to go to LA. I'm going to say Brandon Staley, man. They got a franchise quarterback that they are wasting right now. This team has a losing record and Justin Herbert is one of the most elite quarterbacks in the NFL fringe top five, if not top five. I think at that point, ownership general management looks and say, Hey, look, we've got the talent on the field. Why are we losing games? It's gotta be the coach. Their schedule is not the most difficult going down the rest of the stretch. They do have a game with the Packers. Uh, <laughs> the Ravens will be a tough one. 
Is this uh, a losers leave town game between the Packers and the and the Chargers? Is the losing coach in that be. game? Yeah. Get fired? yeah, I didn't realize that we have our top two picks coaching against each other, man. <laughs> so it'll be the coach off, dude. So this is where we'll we'll be rooting for whichever guy we said to lose. It is a road game for LA. They could definitely blow this one. But yeah, I uh I like Brandon Staley to be the next coach fired. So I guess I get another pick now after this, right? We're doing the snake style. Yeah, you you've got the third pick as well. Let me hear it. All right. So I'm going to go back to the well. Another guy that I alluded to earlier in the podcast and another guy who's got a franchise elite quarterback on his team and has not been able to produce. I think Sean McDermott's going to get fired sometime soon this season. We already saw the offensive coordinator get fired today. They have a 500 record with one of the best quarterbacks in the league. This is the team that has been a Super Bowl favorite or top Super Bowl contender for the last three, four years, and they haven't been able to even get to the big game. I told you that he's had the big gaffes, the 13-second game in Kansas City, 12 men on the field in that game against Denver last night that ultimately cost them. That's all coaching, man. Sean McDermott, you're getting fired soon this season. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, if they lose to the Jets this weekend, that that could be the death sentence for McDermott for sure. I, I would not be five and nine this year. Yeah. If they're five and nine. He's gone. I mean, they've got the Jets, Eagles, Chiefs, Cowboys, Chargers as their next five games. They're there's certainly three losable games in that mix. They've already lost to the Jets this year. And the Chargers are frisky. They could give the Bills defense some trouble. So I I don't disagree with you there. I actually might have flipped those picks. I might have had McDermott as the second instead of the third, possibly. Um, I've got two picks next. This is where I feel like it gets a little bit tough. We're only doing three rounds of this, so there's three picks left. Coaches still that have yet to be named. Brian Dayball, Robert Sala, Arthur Smith, Bill Belichick, Ron Rivera. But my next coach is going to be someone else. I'm going to go with Mike Rabel of the Tennessee Titans. And it pains me to say his name because I love Mike Rabel. He's a former Super Bowl champion three times over with the New England Patriots. He's a crucial part of their defense in the early part of the 2000s. He had some excellent coaching years the last couple of seasons, but it seems like their talent has just aged out on the offensive side of the ball between Derrick Henry, DeAndre Hopkins being at the tail end of their careers. Their quarterback situation isn't great. Ryan Tannehill, they were paying a lot of money, and now he's hurt. So you're relying on Will Levis, who had the one great game as a rookie, but he hasn't been stellar since. They're last place in their division right now. I don't think anybody saw that being the case going into the season. They still have some tough games ahead, some winnable ones as well. But I think if they continue to struggle the next couple of weeks, that could be a move you see happen. They've already started to work in some of their younger talent on the roster into getting a higher snap counts. Wouldn't surprise me if they made a move at the helm either soon. So this is the tough one for me. Um, there's several coaches here that I want to pick. Brian Dayball is a big name that I want to name, but I'm not going to. I think Daniel Jones being hurt for pretty much the whole year will give him a little bit more job security than Giants fans would like. The Jets are up there with Robert Sala, like I said. But I'm going to go with Mr. Ron Rivera of the Washington Commanders. I knew you were. That was going to be my pick if you didn't go with him. But go ahead. I feel bad for Sam Howell, man. He, he's had an awesome year. He leads the NFL in pass attempts. He's top, near the top of the NFL in yards. Uh, he's also near the top of interceptions, but it's partly because of how many pass attempts he has. Rivera has not done a great job of 
helping the commanders win games. Uh, he's had more appearances in the playoffs than winning records, which that's a weird stat if you think about it, but it's true. And they don't really have many more winnable games left this year. I, I don't know why they would stick with him. He hasn't really shown them or given them a reason to. They've got new ownership, ownership that is probably going to be itching to make a change, especially if you have some other coaches having availability at the end of the season, like a Bill Belichick, like a Brandon Staley, like a Sean McDermott, possibly. That's a real hot coaching destination, I think, for me, depending on how the next couple of weeks go. And, and I honestly could see Rivera going a little bit sooner than some other coaches we've named. Well, I think the big thing I do want to talk about him briefly because I, I he was going to be my my third pick, so I guess I should have snagged him earlier. But I also think Eric Bieniemy is kind of being groomed to take over that job. I think he's done a pretty good job with Sam Howell since uh, Howell's taken over as the starting quarterback this year. Bieniemy, obviously, an offensive mind. The league's really you know shifting that direction. You know, they want the young, offensive-minded uh, head coaches, and I think Bieniemy kind of fits that to a T. So. While Washington, actually, in my opinion, even though they're only four and six, has been a little bit better this year than I thought, and Sam Howell's been a little bit better, I think the front office and uh, new ownership that they have is probably going to see that more as an Eric Bieniemy doing than a Ron Rivera and uh, want to get Bieniemy inserted into the head coaching spot uh, because of that. Totally agree with you. Bieniemy is already the best coach on their staff. It's it's so evidently clear. It just is. I, that's, I hate Ron Rivera. That's a move I would I would love to see be made. I, hey, 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 hey. No no slander against Riverboat Ron now. No slander against Riverboat. <laughs> He's tough to watch, man. It's like it's like the Jameis Winston of head coaches. You just It's one end of the spectrum every single time. No, I, don't I, I, I agree with you. I, I think it's about time for him to go. I, I, I caught the tail end of that game also against Seattle. We didn't really talk about it, but he had a uh, – he had some questionable timeout and clock management uh, usage there down the stretch. So um, I think he's kind of struggled in that aspect of the game as well. To All my right, final I'll, pick. Yeah, yeah you got to one, my you final got pick, pick. Yeah, I got one more pick here. Um, and uh, he's my backup pick. I think he's in a tough spot with the team that he um, that he's in right now. But I think he's had some questionable player usage. And that is going to be Arthur Smith of the Atlanta Falcons. You mentioned his name a little bit earlier. I think it would make a lot of sense right now. This is a team that clearly doesn't have a quarterback. And I wouldn't be surprised if ownership and general management gets a new fresh young face in there and says, hey, you pick the quarterback and go from here. Um, we'll see where they shake out in terms of where they're going to be in the draft. But they might be in position to at least trade up at the very least to get a top tier quarterback. And I think they're going to want to do that with a completely new regime. I also question a lot of his player usage, as I said, don't think he's utilized Bijan Robinson to the best degree. I know that we have some fantasy managers in our league that are a little bit disappointed about that. So Arthur Smith is going to be the final pick of the coaching carousel that gets fired, whatever the name of this segment is. Arthur Smith, you're going to be fired before the end of 2023. Yeah, I don't hate that pick. I I love Atlanta as a Kirk Cousins destination next year. <laughs> That's like my ideal location for him to land if I had to pick a place. I am just so frustrated watching their offense and, and how Arthur Smith goes about putting their skill position players in positions to not succeed because they don't. Blows my mind. Uh, names we didn't mention as coaches getting fired. Robert Sala, the New York Jets. Bill Belichick, the New England Patriots. 
Uh, only reason why I didn't mention him, Pats fans, I don't think Robert Kraft is going to let Bill go midseason. He's got – there's too much mutual respect between them. I think this is Bill's last year in New England, but it's going to be a mutual part ways thing at the end of the season. If they haven't fired him by now after that stinker in Frankfurt against the Colts, they're not going to midseason. Unless – unless – they lose to the Giants. That would be the wild card. If they can find a way to lose to the Giants and it's not on purpose, maybe you see the move be made. But I think they're pretty much all in on 2024 at this point. So I'll leave my piece at that with the New England Patriots. Um, Salah is also not on the hot seat. If I got to be candid about that right now, with Rodgers going down week one and they're still four and five and kind of in the hunt for a playoff spot with how bad Zach Wilson's been, I think Robert Sala's actually done a pretty good job. You don't think there's a little bit of tension maybe around no. the locker room because they've stuck with Wilson? He backs Wilson week after week after week, and I feel what like- choice does he have? Who else? Who else is? Who else do they have? Mike White's in Miami now. Rodgers is hurt. I mean, they're going to be pulling somebody up from the practice squad. Uh, you know, I mean, that's a fair point. I mean, you, you got to stick by your guy if you got him. I just, I feel like there's a lot of frustration in that locker room in general. And sometimes that leads to decisions being made that typically wouldn't be, but I'm there with you. I, I, that's part of the reason why I didn't name him was because it is impressive that he's been able to get the jets to four and five at this point. So kudos to him. Neither of us have him getting fired mid season. We got some fantasy football to talk about. We're going to be doing it a little bit differently this week. So we've got uh, some awards that we're going to hand out essentially for different plays that may you may have seen in your fantasy football league or that we have seen in ours. And we're going to give out uh, – We're going to, these are going to be – I'm going to back up, actually. All right, we've got our fantasy football segment coming up next on the show. Myself and the commissioner, Paul Kashak himself, giving out some awards to some standout performances in the fantasy football scoreboards from week 10. We're doing things a little bit different this week, but I kind of like it. So, Paul, let's start with um, recognizing some players from the weekend. We're going to start by giving out our you, you Let the Whole Team Down award. So this award is named pretty simply... It's a guy in your lineup, probably a regular play that just had an absolutely woeful performance over the weekend and, and could have led to you having a loss. Trevor Lawrence, quarterback for the Jacksonville Jaguars, 2.1 fantasy points in standard leagues this past weekend was one of the names I mentioned. Derek Henry was the other 2.5 points in standard fantasy football leagues. Rough showings for both of them. Fantasy managers that had them in their lineups. I hope you were able to overcome their shortcomings in your lineups and pick up some wins anyways. Paul, do you have any other players you wanted to add for that award? No, those are two. Those are two really, really good ones. Uh, they both had tough matchups. Um, so that really, really plays into it there. Lawrence against a stout San Francisco defense and Derek Henry up against the Bucks rush defense, which for now a couple years has really been one of the toughest matchups for fantasy running backs. They got big Vita Vea there in the middle uh been incredibly impressive there's another guy i'd like to throw out it's another jacksonville jaguar we talked about his shortcomings on the day uh, travis Etienne never really got it going 5.4 fantasy points etm was the number two running back by points per game coming into this one only behind christian mccaffrey so um even though it was a tough matchup you know fantasy managers are relying on him 
and he was not able to come through. So those were the big standouts in my eyes for you let the whole team down. Our next award, the Discount Double Stack Award. This is my favorite award, and we're giving it to a stack of a quarterback and flex player, typically a wide receiver or tight end, combining to have a good day for you to help you to win. But it's not going to be the stacks that you would typically think of. It's not going to be your Jalen Hurts, A.J. Brown, or your Justin Herbert, Keenan Allen. This is going to be somebody a little bit different, maybe somebody you weren't expecting. So I'm going to go with Kyler Murray and Trey McBride. I highlighted them a little bit earlier when we talked about that Arizona-Atlanta game. They combined for 36, over 36 combined fantasy points. Really great day for them in a win. Kind of looks like McBride was Murray's favorite target in that game, and McBride has had some good games already in the season. That's connection in a tight end short community right now in fantasy football. That could be a crucial connection for some teams looking to have some uh, late season additions to their roster and, and some late season plays as well. Yeah, that's a really good one there uh, with Kyler back. I got um, a Houston stack. Now, I know C.J. Stroud has been killing it lately, but the receiver that he's thrown to over the past couple of weeks has really come out of nowhere, and he's still the wide receiver 54 in the year. But Nico Collins is down with an injury, and that's allowed Noah Brown to step in for Houston. Seven catches for 172 yards on eight targets this week to register 22.7 fantasy points in our league. Another great day from C.J. Stroud as well. The C.J. Stroud to Noah Brown stack was cooking this week. So that is my discount double stack. It's cooking the week before, too. It, sure that, was. Could, that could be a real thing. That could be a real thing for sure. Sure was. Um, He's benefiting with Nico Collins out right now. I mean, it just proves like when we talk about Stroud, man, like these are not big names that he has. Nico Collins, uh, Noah Brown, like Dalton Schultz is okay at tight end. He's just making everybody around him better. It's pretty absurd when you think about it and put it into perspective that way. Uh, next, we've got our Elvis Presley impersonator award. So this is going to be an award for most of the time, a guy that steps in for an injured player or a guy that out of nowhere has more snap counts over someone that typically outsnaps him during the week and has a good game. So this week I'm going to go with Trenton Irwin. Trenton Irwin rostered in just 4.3% of leagues. He had 12.4 fantasy points thanks to a couple grabs and touchdown uh, in the Bengals' loss to the Texans. Irwin was, I believe, the fourth wide receiver on the Bengals' depth chart before T. Higgins was ruled out in this game. And I want to give a shout out to Mr. Hunter Forsyth for making him a play and his team in our league this past weekend. A deadline decision for Hunter, putting him in the starting lineup, helped Hunter's team get a win uh, in his matchup this week as well. Trent Irwin is our Elvis Presley impersonator of the week, or at least mine. Paul, you got anybody else? Yeah, I'll give an honorable mention because that is really good. And uh, the fact that Hunter actually put him in the lineup uh, gives even more credence to that pick. But I'm going to shout out Brandon Cooks here. Had 29 uh, fantasy points. We've talked about how C.D. Lamb has really carried the load there for Dallas. Brandon Cooks coming in at just the wide receiver 52, even after that big game uh, last week. So I'm going to imagine that a lot of teams have probably given up on him with his performances so far or throughout the year. He's out on the waiver wire in Club Garnet, so nobody was able to capitalize on that big performance from him but he is my Elvis Presley impersonator award even though he looks nothing like Elvis Presley <laughs> our next award the put me in coach award so this is going to be for an award uh, an award for a guy who 
isn't going to be heavily rostered across most leagues, but has a great day. So we're going to go with Josh Dobbs. He was moved to Minnesota a couple of weeks ago. He's the ninth ranked quarterback in standard fantasy formats, and he's only rostered in 39% of leagues. That doesn't make any sense to me, considering how many bad quarterbacks are out there, how desperately some people probably want a good fantasy quarterback on their team. Josh Dobbs is the guy for you, man. He, he can move it through the air. He can scramble into the end zone as well. Uh, he had another big game this past weekend, and I know for a fact there were some folks in fantasy leagues that did not start him that wished that they did. So I got one that actually uh, hits a little bit close to home. Um, in my work league, uh, which I am really struggling in the, this year, unfortunately, I have really been hit by the injury bug in, for my running backs in that league. I initially drafted Nick Chubb. My other guy was uh, Damian Pierce. So Chubb out for the year. Pierce has been hurt the last couple of weeks. So my running back room has been abysmal in that league. But I made a last second pickup to pick up Antonio Gibson, who is still only averaging roughly a little over six points on the season. And he's only rostered in 43% of ESPN leagues. However, he did find the end zone late in that game on a receiving touchdown and tallied five catches for 42 yards through the air to give him 14 fantasy points. Big move on my part. Still lost my, in my work league game, but I'll honor him and nominate him for the Put Me In Coach Award of this week. Okay, I'm with it. I'm with it. Uh, next up, MVP of the week. This award is a little bit more self-explanatory. We're going to give an honorable mention first. Dak Prescott, 37.86 fantasy points and went against the Giants. Nearly 20 more points than expected, plus 19.16 points expected on the day. Dak has this passing offense working like a charm right now and cd lamb is a big part of it but you mentioned brandon cooks had a big day as well if you're getting brandon cooks 20 plus points and fantasy side of things you're a solid quarterback in fantasy terms so credit to dak he's our honorable on he's my honorable mention for mvp of the week and my overall mvp is a guy who's rostered on all of my fantasy teams i'm sticking by my dude it's mr keenan allen 37 points this week second most across standard point scores 21.3 more points than expected in a matchup against the Lions. Detroit really needed him in this game as well. He's having a career year, man, and I absolutely love having him as a plug-and-play option on my lineup. I don't even need to think about whether or not I'm starting him. He's just there, and I'm happy about it, man. Credit to Keenan. Thank you. Please keep playing well. Staley, just whatever you do, if you're going to get yourself fired, feed Keenan Allen. That's all I care about. Yeah, Keenan's had a hell of a year, and I I, I can uh, own up to the fact I thought he would have a little bit of a down year getting up there in age, and that has not been the case at all. Great year for Keenan Allen. Great for him. My uh, MVP of the week award, again, I'm going to another one of the teams that I had that also lost this week. It's been a little bit of a trying year for, for me in fantasy, but he's my boy. I've talked about him a million times on this podcast. I did not mention him in the recap of his game this week, but I have to give love to my boy, Amon Ross St. Brown, who had 28 and a half points uh, in our league. And he might've had one or two points less in your ESPN standard league. I like to give bonuses for 100 yard days, but he did have a career high in receiving yards, eight catches, 156 yards on nine targets. And he found the end zone as well. Amon Ross St. Brown is my personal MVP of the week. That's my boy right there. Amon Ross St. Brown, another I've got him on one of my teams. I have somehow I have Keenan Allen and him on one of my fantasy teams. And 
that's a cheat code right there. Oh my, yeah, I'm I'm now I'm first place in the league, most points scored right now. I'm loving that duo. Um, got to finish the job though these next few weeks. You want to give a shout out to to a couple games from our fantasy league as well. Uh, I see you got some a couple other awards listed here that that we can honor some folks with as well if you like. Yeah, absolutely. We want to make this inclusive for everybody, but I we still want to keep people up to date on what went down in the University of South Carolina Club Baseball Fantasy Football League, which of <laughs> course is abbreviated as what, Patrick? The U of S C F F. Uh, U of S E C B F F L. Yeah, that may or may not be right, but we'll dump, we'll jump right into it. Um, I'm going to just do a game of the week award for both the club Garnet side and the club black side. There were two games that finished within, uh, the two teams in each game finished within a fraction of a point of each other. And that was in on the club Garnet side, a matchup between Chris and Bob. And if anybody remembers our podcast from a couple weeks ago, Bob lost, on a Justin Herbert interception on the final offensive play of the game for the chargers that docked him negative two. He had a one point lead over EJ and he ended up losing that game. Well, a very similar story happens this go around Cortland Sutton, while he never, while Bob never actually officially had the lead was nipping right at Chris's heels, just a couple points back after Sutton has a beautiful touchdown catch in that game. Cortland Sutton then puts the ball on the ground, fumbles, loses two points, that's the difference in the game. Bob ultimately loses by a, a fraction of a point. That Sutton fumble did him in. Then let's go over to the club black side between Jason and Coop. And it looked like Jason had made the comeback. So Coop wins this one, 138 to 137. There were decimal points in there as well. Uh, so he won by a fraction of a point. But Jason came within a fraction of a point after a Javante Williams receiving touchdown late in that game to give Denver the lead with roughly four minutes to go. Jason, meanwhile, had Stephon Diggs and Javante Williams still to go, and neither of them registered anything else on the score sheet for the final four minutes of the game. While Buffalo had to throw to get down the field and ultimately score, and then Denver had their two-minute drill offense out there with Samaje P. Ryan and Jaleel McLaughlin, so they didn't bring Javante Williams out uh, on the final drive. And despite the fact that each player's team had a chance to score in the final four minutes, neither of Jason's guys registered any points in those final four minutes, and he fell to four and six. Um, the other thing about those two games that I really just wanted to bring up is that that's the epitome of fantasy football right there. Those two games and the way they played out and how that Monday night football game played out, in my opinion, is what fantasy football is all about. One minute little thing can be the difference. Bob's going to look back at the Cortland Sutton fumble and identify that as the reason that he lost this game. But we talked about Derrick Henry as well and how he was uh, part of the You Let My Team Down award. You know, he only had two and a half points and he was in Bob's starting lineup. Just think if Henry gets 10 more yards, Bob wins that game. Same deal. Stephon Diggs gets one more catch. Jason wins that game. Those two matchups epitomized how gut-wrenching fantasy football can be. I'm sure everybody listening who plays it can relate to that. That's why us as dudes get so absolutely freaked out about something that starts with the word fantasy. It is, it's just mind boggling the way that you can win and lose some games. Those two games epitomized it. Great, great week in club Garnet and club black, a lot of close matchups. I hope it was like that for everybody else's league out there as well. Fantasy football is a game of inches, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, otherwise, 
Look into the waiver wire. This is a game we're going to call waiver roulette. All right. So it's pretty simple. We have a few players listed here. Paul and I are going to give a dollar amount that we're going to bid on these players. Uh, I want to keep the dollar amount something where we can't bet too ridiculously on it, where one of us can't put like 30 points on a guy. Do you want to keep it to somewhere between like one and 15 dollars or something like that? Yeah, we'll go. We'll cap it at 15. Most of the guys right now at this point in the waiver wire, it's tough to really find a true waiver wire darling. Um, because if you're smart, you should have picked up Keaton Mitchell last week, just like I did, but I'll, 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 I'll stay hands off on that. But yeah, Patrick, if you want to kick things off, we'll cap it at $15 and, uh, you can name your first guy first. Jaden Reed of the green Bay Packers. This one's a little bit more of an interesting decision. Uh, Mr. Reed, the 39th ranked wide receiver right now in standard leagues, 15.1% of rosters have him though so it's not like a lot of folks have really caught on to him partly because the Packers have struggled but he's averaging double digit fantasy points since week seven that was the Packers bye week uh, or the week after their bye week I'm gonna go a little bit higher on him not too high but again I'm thinking about those who may be a little bit short in their wide receiver rooms I'm not gonna go the full 15 on him but I'll go with a solid eight for Jaden Reed. I want to make it difficult on you. That is, that's going to win it. I'm not going, I'm not going any higher than four or five bucks. Um, targets are really what I look at when I'm looking to pick up a receiver, not necessarily um, their yards and touchdowns, although obviously you have to consider that his targets have still not reached above six since week three so even though you did mention as of late the production's picked up a little bit it's been a little bit touchdown dependent um i need more consistent targets if i'm going to be picking up a receiver and looking to plug and play him because i need to know that the quarterback is at least looking his way because receiver when you pick up a receiver off the waiver wire their points and their stat sheet can be so volatile based on uh one or two big plays just the nature of the nfl and the passing game so if i'm not seeing consistent targets which i'm really not with Jaden reed I'm not looking to go that high. Only a couple bucks for me. $8 would definitely win it for you. Next up, we're going to switch over to the running backs. We got two or three names to list here. I'm going to start with Latavius Murray. Uh, essentially the backup running back for the Buffalo Bills, but he had 13.9 fantasy points in the Bills' loss against the Broncos, mainly because he was able to get into the end zone. He's the 45th ranked running back, and the Bills did fire their offensive coordinator, so – Maybe there's a chance that the backs get a little bit more involved in this offense. They haven't been very involved to this point this year. That being said, I've had Latavius Murray at different points over the last couple of years in fantasy. He's not a guy I trust by any means. He had 13.9 points this past week. Sure. But I wouldn't be surprised if he has two or less in the next two or three games each. So I'm going to stick with a dollar for him. I don't really have a lot of faith in him as a fantasy player. If you absolutely need someone to play in this week, if you want to go for a committee with the Bills, uh, it's there's better options for you, but it's not a terrible idea. Um, but yeah, I, I'm just going with the $1 amount, the minimum for Latavius Murray. I'm going somewhere between the $5 and $10 range. Now, this is predicated on uh, a factor reality that maybe your running back room at this point in the fantasy season is a little bit banged up. If you got fully healthy running backs, and you got depth at the position, it's probably not somebody you need to bid on. But 
if you are struggling to find someone to fill that RB1 and RB2 role, I think Latavius Murray could be a sneaky play, a sneaky wager of about 5 to $10. And here's why. He did get into the end zone, so his point total will be a little bit skewed because of that. But we saw James Cook have ball security issues, and that could play a large factor in Sean McDermott's mind and the Bills coaching staff going forward and could increase Murray's touches as a result, and especially around the goal line where everybody's going to be looking to punch that ball out. Latavius Murray could be someone who maybe falls into the end zone. That's probably what you're going to need for it to be a fantasy-relevant day. But I think uh, one or two extra touches per week could be coming with some ball security issues out of James Cook. I'll bet somewhere between the 5 to $10 range. So you get Murray easily. This name is one I'm, I'm a little bit more curious to see where we both side with him. Rico Dowdle, former University of South Carolina Gamecock. You see it right here. Uh, this is our boy. He's currently in the Dallas Cowboys running back room. He's the 53-ranked running back. He had almost 14 points last week, largely in garbage time uh, against the Giants. But he outgained Tony Pollard. He reached the end zone. Pollard's only reached the end zone twice all year. He has a higher yards per carry than Tony Pollard on the season. And the Cowboys play the Panthers this week, who I expect to blow out. I expect them to blow out the Panthers this week. I think Dowdle's going to get some touches. And I think there's a slight chance he overtakes Pollard as the number one back in that running back room. Pollard's really struggled this year. The Cowboys are going to be doing damn near anything they can to try to figure out a way to give them even more versatility and scoring ability on offense. And their running game hasn't fit the bill for them to this point this season. So I don't think a lot of people are going to be high on Rico Dowdle. So I'm not going to give again, the full 10 to $15 range for this player, but I'll give a solid six or seven bucks for him. I, I, I feel like there's a little bit of value there. You, you might even be able to get away with giving five. Um, I'll stick right with that $6 range is what I'll say. Uh, you're going to win him then. I, I do like the talent. I like the player. And I like the fact that he comes from the University of South Carolina. But I can't quite reach where you are about a potential to take over that uh, number one back role in Dallas. The matchup is really the only thing, in my opinion, that he's got going for him this week. I think it's too risky to be going for a, a picking up and then ultimately looking to start somebody who is still considered the backup running back and not really even in like a timeshare role. When you compare like Jalen Warren's technically the backup to Najee, but they're basically sharing time. Not really the case here with Rico Dowdle. The matchup is great and they could be playing from ahead and could be up 20 to 30 points at this game. So the fourth quarter could be all the Dowdle. But that's a huge risk that you're going to be taking at this point in the fantasy season. And it's also one that I don't think that you need to be spending big waiver wire budget on. I'm not spending more than a couple bucks on him at most. Next up, this is our final player on the waiver roulettes, Ty Chandler, the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, Alexander Madison went out last week in the Vikings game against the Saints. He picked up a concussion. Uh, he's in the concussion protocol. They're saying he's not likely to play this week. Right now he's listed as questionable, and Chandler is listed as a starting back on the depth chart. I'm definitely going to be putting in a claim for him in most of my leagues because I am a little bit short on running backs in some uh, some teams that I have. I don't want to use all of my budget on him, but I do recognize that a lot of other teams are going to be potentially high on him going into this week and maybe the future as well. So I'll give a solid eight, $8 for Ty Chandler. I don't want to give more than him. 
Uh, I don't want to give away all my $15 for him, but I'll go with, I'll go with eight, $9, $9. It is. Oh, I'm going with the full 15 Patrick. Ty Chandler's mine. I'm making this uh, budget or making this bid on the waiver wire here for Ty Chandler based on a potential reality that I'm a little bit banged up at running back, as I mentioned before, and I really need someone to spot start. And even if you don't, Ty Chandler is somebody that will probably deliver you at least a top 20 or 25 performance this week. James Cook was able to run the ball effectively, as was Latavius Murray last night against Denver. We saw how much Miami gashed him a couple weeks ago. If there has been a big weakness on that defense, it's definitely been on the ground. And I think Ty Chandler could exploit that. He could be in for a big day with a lot of touches as well with Madison being out. So Ty Chandler could be somebody that could really help you get a win this week. And for those teams that are sitting four and six, maybe even five and five and without a good point total, it's desperation time. You might not be able to afford to lose the rest of the way. Ty Chandler could be a guy, even if it's just for one week, that could help you get that victory. And that victory is absolutely worth the full waiver wire bid. I'm bidding 15 bucks. He's mine. All right. So you heard it from the commission himself. Ty Chandler worth every penny and your remaining waiver wire budget, even if it's more than $15, don't be afraid to put the house on them. <laughs> watch them get like, watch them get like three and a half, knowing how much we jinx people on this podcast. Uh, yeah, I, I could totally see that happening now. <laughs> um, folks, thanks for tuning in for us again this week. Wait, wait, wait. Before we sign off, best bet, just take Iowa football unders. They've been hitting baby. Hawkeyes under. That's all. I don't even know who they play this week, to be honest with you. Just ride the under. Doesn't matter. <laughs> They've got Illinois. Oh, oh, oh. They got <laughs> Illinois. They got Illinois. Okay. There's not going to be – there will be six points in the first half. Nothing more, nothing less. Here it is. 30 and a half, the over-under. Have we learned nothing when it comes to Iowa football? Ride the under. Cast again last week. They shut out Rutgers. Cast the week before against Northwestern. Under 30 and a half, Iowa, Illinois. And now I'm ready to sign off. <laughs> well, you heard it from the commish. Bet the Iowa under while you still can. Ride or die, baby. Death taxes and Iowa football unders. Thanks again, folks. You've been listening to the Fifth and Long Podcast for commish and myself. Thanks for tuning in. Best of luck this weekend. We'll tune in again with you next week. <laughs>